forever. Amen. Excuse me. Well, we um, do not have a, a hymn of song preparation this morning, so let me encourage you to join me in taking your copy of God's Word. And turn with me back to the book of Nehemiah as we continue our study this Old Testament book that we find between Esther and Ezra. Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll look at the last few verses of it this morning, 14 through 19. So Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19. And last Lord's Day, we looked at the previous 13 verses and how uh, there's issues taking place within the covenant community. Issues taking place within the community, within the wall, as they seek to rebuild the wall. And the main issue is poverty. Severe levels of poverty and how on some level this poverty was brought on uh, by other Jews. So it wasn't just enemies or or outsiders who were causing this poverty. It was the predatory loaning practices of their own brothers and sisters in the faith. And so the idea that these same people they would worship with, they would come together on the Lord's Day and would come together and, and, and sit and, and worship together. Those people they would sing the songs with, they would listen to scripture being read and explained with. Maybe they, they taught Sunday school, taught their children in Sunday school, or they taught them a vacation Bible school, they came to their children's weddings. Those same people were now taking advantage of the situation and causing them to sink into unthinkable actions related to poverty. That at a time where they could have shown mercy and grace their minds and hearts were fixated on how much more money they could make no matter the human cost and then as we looked at we said thankfully that God does show us mercy even the depth of our great spiritual poverty when we were enemies of God the, the father sent the son to be our salvation And the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to apply that salvation, the blessing of salvation, to our lives. And so this morning we read Nehemiah's continued account of what it means to biblically and faithfully deal with poverty, in particular with generosity. What is our call as Christians to be generous? So we will look at that this morning in Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19. Join me now as we go so, Lord, in time for, for, uh, for blessing, join me as we pray. Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, our prayer this morning is that you would grant our hearts free from worldly affairs, that they may hear and understand your holy word, and to do so with all diligence and faith, so we may rightly discern your gracious will, to cherish it, and to live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor. And all this through Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. If you'll join me now for standing, and stand me now for the reading of God's word. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. 
but I, I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand a food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Each year, Forbes magazines, Forbes, I'm sorry, Forbes magazine, singular, Forbes magazine, publishes a list of the nation's biggest giver. And so for this past year, those on the list have donated around a total of $169 billion over the course of their lifetimes. And that's actually up $20 billion from $149 billion last year. Now here's a sample of who's on that list. Number one is Warren Buffett. Maybe us may be, many of us may be familiar with who that is. But his net worth is $115.6 billion. And so far, over the course of his life, he has given $46.1 billion to various charities and foundations. And he has stated that he has the goal of giving away at least 99% of his fortune before he dies. A little bit further down the list is Mackenzie Scott, who is the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon. You can imagine that divorce, she got quite the alimony out of that. The alimony was $53.5 billion. And so far in the past two years, she has given away $8.61 billion. But that number may be higher because that's only what she has stated she has given to. She tends to be private. So there are those who believe, many of those who believe that she has given more without publicity. So that number of $8.61 billion is probably more. And fascinating to me is this man named Charles Chuck Feeney, who's the founder of the duty-free shoppers retail chain. As of this year, his net worth is under, under $2 million. But over the course of his life, he has given away over $8 billion to various charities and causes. And he has said his goal is to die with $0 in his bank account. That's a fascinating list, isn't it? To think about all that money. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard for me to, to wrap my head around having, having that much money and be able to give away that much money. And it sounds so generous, doesn't it? I've given away X amount of billions of dollars. However, there is another side to this list. Of the 400 billionaires on this list, only 19 have given away 10% or more of their wealth, while 156 have given less than 1%. So we look at those names and we think, oh, how generous. But 156 of them have given less than 1%. One of those is Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, who as of today is worth $201 billion. $201 billion. Think about that the next time you order something from Amazon Prime. 
And this past year, he gave away almost $900 million. Worth $201 billion, gives away $900 million. That $900 million amounts to about 11 days of his income for the past year. He's willing to give away 11, uh, 11 days worth of his income for the past year while his ex-wife has given away billions of dollars. Now part of why this became newsworthy is because if you notice in the past couple of years, uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have been in this race to see who can be the first private citizen to launch into outer space. And they have spent an insane amount of money uh, in this race. And so in this, and then as their giving has been made public, they face criticism that for all the money they spent on this space program, on their, on, on their separate space programs, they could have cured world hunger. They could have paid off entire nation's debts. And for those of you who have college students, they could have paid for every tuition of every college student in our nation. And so this leads to the question of generosity. What qualifies as generosity? We look at, we look at those who've given this amount. We look at those who've given a lesser amount. What does it mean to be generous? Is it how much you give in relation to your net worth? Or is it why you give? Or is it both? Is it somewhere in the middle? Or is it neither? And so we, we look at this list and we have to wonder, why do they give? What, what's the reason? Do these billionaires care about others? Do they want to help? Does it make for good PR? Maybe they're trying to buy their way to heaven. Because if you're not a Christian, if you don't really know Jesus, you would think that if you die, you stand before the throne and they say, why should I let you into heaven? go, well, I gave away $200 billion to help other people. So what qualifies as generosity? Well, we don't want the world to define that for us because it's not the right definition. We want to turn to God and his word. And we want to know what he tells us what it means to be generous. Because we come to this passage in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah talks about his generosity. He talks about what he, he doesn't take. He talks about what he gives. He even has a prayer to end that sounds kind of braggart. Remember me, God, and all the good that I've done. Now this is in contrast to the, to the predatory practice of other Jews. Nehemiah takes this moment to talk about how generous he was. So what does it mean to be generous? And was Nehemiah a good model of it? Now we can think of some passages that provide us guidance in, in answering this question. We think of Paul writing to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then we go back and we look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. 
So according to scripture, generosity is a matter of both the amount and the heart. God cares about how much you give, but God also cares about why you give. He wants us to give generously. But he wants us to give generously from a heart which is cheerful. Not, not writing the check, mumbling, moaning and groaning and mumbling against God, but to cheerfully to give generously. And the thing is, God doesn't just call us this sort of faith. He models this faith for us as well. You may have heard it said before, no one can outgive God. And I've generally heard that in, in, in relation to challenging people to give in the church. Give more because you cannot outgive God. But I think there's a greater truth to this. No one can outgive God because God has given the best and the most. How do we know that? We know that because of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten son. We cannot outgive God because God has given us his only son. He did so willingly. He did so lovingly. As we talked about before, and the covenant redemption made before time began, before Genesis 1-1, the triumph God made a covenant to save us from our sins. And within that, that, that triumph God, there's this being of love and grace that the Father covenanted to give his only Son. And the Son covenanted to be sent to accomplish salvation for, the, for his people. And the Holy Spirit covenanted to come then and apply the salvation to God's people. And all this came from the triumph of God's being of love and grace and mercy. So in the faith that we confess, our faith in a God and who we love and follow because he first loved us, we find a God who gives generously and who gives cheerfully. And he has set that pattern of blessing for us in our lives. A pattern which, when we follow, leads to blessings untold. I mean, Paul tells us, if you, if you sow sparingly, if you sow little, you will reap little. But if you sow bountifully, if you sow generously, if you sow cheerfully, then you will reap many blessings from the Lord. If we would just listen and obey. How can we outgive the one who has given us his only son? How can we outgive the one who cheerfully gave us his son, knowing the price of salvation? All so he could call us his sons and daughters. There is blessing in that faith. There is blessing in living out that faith. When we live as God has called us to, and he's shown us that he will bless us for that faithful obedience. I'm very thankful that early on in my, in my ministry training, I had a wise pastor tell me, and it's something I've held on to, that a pastor should never know who tithes in his church or how much they tithe. A pastor of the church should never know who tithes and if they do, how much they tithe because that can lead to a number of problems and issues. 
So all I'd say is, I don't know which of you tithe. And if you do tithe, I don't know how much you give. If you notice, when the offerings are taken up, a couple of our officers go into the back and they count it back there. And they make the report back there. Occasionally on Sunday I may ask, how's our giving this week? And they'll say, oh, it was really good, or, eh, we've had better Sundays. And towards the end of the month, we get a report, or sorry, towards the beginning of the month, we get a report from John Swearingen that says how much has been given. So all that to say is, I don't know which of you give, and I don't know how much you do give. And I say that because what I'm getting ready to say then, you cannot say, you cannot accuse me of the classic pastoral, passive-aggressive pointing of a finger because I really have no idea if you give or how much. When we think about the generosity of God, we have to think through this. Do you give? Do you give to this church? Do you give generously? Do you give cheerfully? Do you give to other ministries? Do you give cheerfully? Do you give generously? Do you help those in need generously and cheerfully? See, this is a matter matter of obedience. When it comes to tithing, when it comes to ministries, when it comes to those who need help, are you obeying God? Are you obeying him and how you give and why you give? And if not, why not? What have you deemed more important than obedience? What in your life have you said is more important than obeying the one who gave you his only son? What have you said is more important than the generosity of God. And whatever that is, how important is that in the light of eternity? We all know that old saying, you never see a a, a U-Haul behind a hearse. What is it that you're choosing to invest in more than obedience to God? James tells us that all good things come from God. I would imagine you think your paycheck is a good thing that comes from God. Your investments, that's a good thing from God. Your home, your car, all that comes from the faithful, generous, and cheerful God. Now please understand, this is not a plea for you to start, for the church to start getting all your money. You hear those churches that uh, they'll pass the offering plate and when it comes back up, if it's not high enough, they'll keep on passing it, passing it around so it gets yay amount of money into it. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a plea for obedience. This is a plea for you to be faithful to your calling as a child of God. Because the gospel tells you, you are a Christian because of the one who is so faithfully, generously, and cheerfully given to his only son. And all those things you deem good in your life, all those material blessings are there because of the one who has so faithfully, generously, and cheerfully given that to you. So are we being faithful to the one who has been so faithful to us, who has so generously given to us, has done so from his very being of love and cheerfulness?
That's our barometer in giving. And that's the barometer we have to use with Nehemiah's account here. Because on some level, it seems like he may be, maybe is trying to give some, some good PR here, right? He's already talked about these predatory loaner, or loan sharks and how they've taken advantage of people. And he even said, you know, I, I've, I've been a part of this. And we don't know if that means he, he's actually been a part of, of, of taking advantage of people or if he's just confessing the sin for the people. But this kind of comes along as almost seems like good PR. Right? There are those bad people over there. But let me tell you about what I have and it's interesting, he, he inserts this, and it's out of chronological sequence. If we've, as we've seen in our reading so far, he, he's following a chronological sequence. But this is, it looks like it's coming out of his personal diaries 12 years later, and he's talking about uh, how the situation resurfaced again, and to highlight how, how well he handled it. Now, the account is brief, but it's very specific. Again, it's similar to the earlier scenario we read about, of these people, some who are too poor to eat, others who own land but are now having to mortgage their property in order to buy food, and there's another group who are being crippled by taxes. And some of these families are forced into a situation where they're, 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 they have to sell their children to slavery, and for some of them, even worse. And now it's 12 years later, and Nehemiah says, look, something similar has happened. And he, he starts off by mentioning he has a food allowance. Excuse me, he had a food allowance which went with the job of being a governor in Jerusalem. We have to remember he, he served as an official capacity of the king's political representative in the city. Yes, Nehemiah was a Jew. He had a personal interest and investment in Jerusalem and the wall, but he was there at the king's will. So he was, he was a politician. He was a governor. And he was entitled to certain allowances, including a residence and food which means he had a right to collect taxes from the people for his personal treasury. He had a right to go out and tax people for his own lifestyle. Now also, from that revenue would come to support local projects, such as rebuilding the wall. But these taxes were also designed to enable him to live at a level thought appropriate for the office of governor. This taxation was his right. Demanding it wasn't unethical. It was, his, it was his entitlement. But what does Nehemiah say to this right? He turned it down. He turned down the entitlement and he turned down the lifestyle all for the sake of his brothers and sisters who could not live in the same way and whose some may still be struggling with poverty. Here we see the fateful nature of Nehemiah. He could not stand the idea of living in a mansion with the finest of robes and linen, gathering every, every evening to have this gourmet meal, while down the hill his kin were working on the wall. And they lived in modest homes. And in the day they gathered around the table to eat a meal of whatever they could scrap together. So what Nehemiah did was an act of self-denial for the sake of others. He denied himself so that others wouldn't be burdened. It's a principle that Paul expounds at some length in 1 Corinthians 9. He tells the church in Corinth that as an apostle, he was, entitled to, he was entitled to his living provided through the contributions of those to whom he ministered. 
He was free to eat and drink what came out of generosity and sacrifice of others. He was entitled to a stipend. He was entitled to a salary. And he explains to them, this was not simply from human authority, but because the law of God spelled out such entitlement, such as Leviticus and the book of Numbers. But I have to lay out the case. Here's what I'm due. Here's what I'm owed. This is what you should be doing. He ends up by saying, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Here's what I'm owed. Here's what I am due, but I have made no use of these. Why? Because he valued others more than his own comforts. Because Paul valued the gospel and the gospel ministry more than for him to have the newest, the best, are the biggest. He denied himself for the sake of his people. And this act of self-denial for the good of others gets to the heart of the gospel. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing. That's at the heart of Nehemiah and Paul's self-denial. It's the self-denial of Jesus Christ. Who though in the form of God, as the second person of the triumph Godhead, standing next to the right hand of Father in heaven, adored by all in heaven, who had all the riches and blessings of heaven, though he in the form of God made himself nothing, left it all behind to be born in a manger, left it all behind to be born under the law, left it all behind to suffer underneath the persecution of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other sinners around. Left it all behind so that ultimately, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, for him to be nailed upon the cross, to be beaten within an inch of his life, to be sped on by his own people, to be cursed by his own people, for his own death to be mocked by his own people. For him to take upon the wrath of God, to experience hell on the cross, he left all that behind, all the glories of heaven behind, in order to end up on the cross, to be taken down and laid in a tomb. That is the self-denial of Jesus. That is what he did for you and for me. When we think about the gospel, we have to think about the fact that part of what the gospel tells us is that God put us first. That when God looked down upon our pitiful condition, he said, I will willingly and cheerfully give you my son. And the son said, I will willingly and cheerfully. The book of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. If you confess to be a Christian this morning, then you're confessing the blessings of the self-denial of Jesus Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing. And that should change the very heart and actions of his people. Nehemiah had a certain rights and privileges. He should have been living in a mansion with a with a with a, with a BMW or a Bentley or Rolls Royce with a chauffeur and he should have been dining on fine food every night and there should have been a flat screen TV in every room and whatever else sort of luxury we can think of but he turned it all down for the sake of his brothers and sisters 
just like his Savior would do for him. And Nehemiah's decision was not a cheap one. Part of his position as governor, he was expected to entertain every night. Every night he had 150 people at his table. Can you imagine that? Every night having a, having a dinner party, you got 150 people there. I'm sure he had servants, but man, 8 o'clock, you got to be kicking them out. It's time to go to bed. But in addition to this, they also had a steady stream of foreign diplomatic officials who passed through, and, and, and it was customary that he would put them up and feed them. So it could be 175, 200, 250 people that he was feeding. And he bore the cost as entertainment himself. His generosity, he tells us, it was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. I don't know if that equals out to Whole Foods or Food Line or KJ nowadays, but I know that's expensive. And instead of taxing, taxing his people for it, he paid for it out of his own pocket because he has seen the depth of poverty for them. And he didn't want to burden them anymore. So he gave generously. And that points us to how generously Jesus deals with us. But we have to look at what was Nehemiah's motivation. Was he just doing this to stop so the people wouldn't revolt and throw him out? He tells us in verse 15 that he feared God more than he feared man. He lived for God's glory alone. He knew He's a good ARP. He knew what his chief end was. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He knew that it, he was a seeking all of his life to bring his life into conformity with God's will. He loved God because God has shown his love to him. Therefore, he took God's word seriously. He gave it the reverence that it deserved. He saw sentences, all the, the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives. He saw all that is coming from none other than the mind and will of God. And so God himself was speaking to him directly. And this is meant to be indicative of the Christian community as well. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Acts chapter 2. It's after Pentecost. Jesus has been has, has ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come down upon the Christian community. And we're told what the early church looked like. And part of, early, part of the practice of the early church was a generous lifestyle. They willingly shared their possessions with the needy as though they did not own them. And he said, and part of that, part of your... That being part of it, that thousands were being saved daily. Now think about that. There wasn't just the preaching and teaching of the word. But they looked at the generosity of these people to each other and to others. And they said, I want a part of that. So through the generosity, they came to listen to, to Peter preach and, and Thomas and Matthew. And they were saved. But it's fascinating that the reason for their behavior was that the fear of God had come upon every soul. So God was more than a theological proposition to them. God was everything to them. Even how they looked at their bank accounts. Even how they looked at their, at their possessions and the opportunity to minister to other people. God was never far from their thoughts and hearts. Their greatest pleasure was fellowship with God. And because of that, the church grew by thousands. Now my question for you is this. Could the same be said of you? Could the same be said of me? Could the same be said of us? What is the reputation of Bethel ARP in Winsboro? 
I know at one time it was uh, ARP stood for all rich people. I don't know if that's still our reputation. I hear from others that we, we tend to be nice. I think people tend to like at least most of us. What's our gospel presence in Winsboro? Do they see us loving God above all else? Do they see a group of people where God is never far from their hearts and their minds? Do they see our generosity to each other and with others? Do they see a people who are seeking to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love others, their neighbors, as themselves? Or do they see part-time Christians? When they have nothing else to do, they'll go to church. When their schedule is free from other things, maybe they'll go to Bible study or a circle meeting. Maybe we'll have our kids involved with youth group, but we don't know. Have you ever wondered what Winsboro thinks of us? And not that we should be living our lives just for the opinions of others, but... We live in such a way that pleases God. It makes a difference. People's poverty brought forth in Nehemiah a deep sense of compassion. He did not demand of them what he knew they could not pay because the service was too heavy for them. He had called to minister in an economically depressed community, which was on the other side of the tracks from lifestyle he had known as a servant to the most powerful man in the world. But this sight moved him to a fateful generosity. And all of this, we need to conclude, so we'll conclude with this conclusion. All concludes with a prayer. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for his people. Only a man who truly knows God speaks of him and to him this way. Martin Luther said that Christianity consists principally in personal pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And this is the relationship that Nehemiah had with the, with the God of the universe. He brings his actions before God and he humbly beseeches that God would remember for eternity how he acted from the faith entrusted to him. This isn't a bragging prayer. This is the prayer of a child coming before his father to say, I love you because you first loved me. And because of this love, I have obeyed you. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. I have lived out in this love. This prayer comes from someone who knows the faithful God who is cheerfully generous. Could you pray the same? This morning, is Jesus just a theological proposition for you that just keeps you out of hell, hopefully? Or is he your real Lord and Savior who so generously gave himself for you that you know nothing else to do but to be just that generous back to him and to whatever needs you see? Is your heart captured by the joy of knowing one who so loves you that he gave himself up for you so you share that joy with others? That you cheerfully give 
we are called to be generous. We are called to be cheerful in our generosity. May we, through our faith, be that very thing that God has called us to be. Let us pray.